0: Ahead and call meeting to order. And we'll start with roll call. Einan Lynch, present. Frazier?
1: He's in London.
0: Sure. <laughs> Fitzsimmons. Oh, she's no, yes. Gade? Um, present. Grimm? Here. Krieger? Here. Murray? Here. Shetty? Silman, Here. Sturdivant. Present. Walter. All right.
2: And Steph. will you can go ahead and introduce yourselves?
3: Sarah Gardner. Daniel Bissell.
2: Megan Hill.
0: And next is the approval of the minutes from August 7th, 2023. Um, are there any corrections needed? There any motion to accept?
4: I'll motion to accept the minutes. Gabe.
0: I'll second. Solman? All in favor?
4: Aye.
5: Aye. Aye. Aye.
0: Aye. Any opposed? All right, the motion passes. And next for public comment. Uh, Members of the public, are are there members of the public? (laughs) Are you all here for member of the public? (coughs) Members of the public who would like to speak regarding items not on the agenda are welcome to address the commission for up to three minutes. Uh, Due to public meeting laws, we commissioners cannot engage in discussion or take any action on an item not already listed in the agenda. That means we can listen to your comments, but not comment on or discuss them at this time. Is there anyone from the public who would like to speak? If so, please state your name. I think not. Let's move on to announcements. All
1: right, so we're gonna start off with action items from the last meeting. Um, the first action item was that I was going to correct the attendance sheet before turning in the minutes. We did that. Thanks for the catch. Um, next, the commission members were going to work on visioning um, what success will look like if we fully implement the climate action plan. So we're very much looking forward to beginning to unpack some of the thinking you've been doing um, at the, toward later in the meeting today. Um, commission members will also email staff to indicate interest in Climate Fest. We had three volunteers volu- uh, stand up to host Climate Fest events, and Megan will be giving us uh, the rundown on that here in a moment. But thank you, one and all, for your willingness to help out with that. And then uh, staff will include an invitation to the September Climate Action, or in the September Climate Action Newsletter for community members to attend the upcoming meetings related to the visioning process. We did um, put a little note in the Climate Action Newsletter. You might have seen it at the end talking about it. And actually, this was really useful. Um, We ended up having a little discussion internally about how best to handle Um, if members of the public came, given that we're also subject to public meetings law in our discussion. Um, And so we decided the best thing to do was to put it in the newsletter as promised, but not send out a larger uh, press release with the intention, of course, that as we work our way through the climate pollution reduction grant process, we'll be having a number of public events where the public can weigh in as well. So part of what we'll be doing is um, sort of field testing some discussion points we have with you all before taking it to the public. But we wanted to let you know, first and foremost, the public will have an opportunity to contribute to those discussions. And second, as a result of this, um, we had some discussion about how we advertise the commission meetings in the newsletter and decided actually it would be quite useful for all future meetings rather than just saying they take place, here's where you get more information, to include a little tidbit saying this is what we're going to be discussing in the coming months. So, That was a very long way of saying, we did it, thanks for the suggestion. It was even more useful than um, we initially thought when it was brought up, so thanks one and all. All right, and then next up we have an update from the Energy Benchmarking Working Group. Danny's going to take us through that, and members of the Working Group who are present um, can chime in as well.
3: Um, First, I'd like to thank um, all the members of the uh, Energy Benchmarking Working Group for their hard work and, and uh, perseverance in scheduling meetings and getting this worked out, especially with the uh, uh, initial difficulty in sharing the document over at Google Docs. Um, appreciate uh, your patience with that. Um, but as you all saw in the um, agenda packet, um, the um, memo outlines a voluntary benchmarking um, program um, wherein uh, city staff will recruit, um, Businesses and building owners to um, um, benchmark their properties uh, using um, Energy Star's Portfolio Manager. Um, city staff will help them um, uh, create um, a an account on Energy uh, Manager. Uh, I'm sorry, on uh, Portfolio Manager, and enter in the first year or two of their um, energy data, so they can have a good. Um, baseline to go off of. With that, um, the city can, um, city staff can start to identify some of the largest energy users um, in the city um, who are participating in the voluntary program. And then, um, hopefully, um, staff and the uh, business or building owners themselves can, um, along with the utility, help identify ways to um, reduce that energy usage. as you can see, we've already engaged with um, a local brewery-restaurant and a house of uh, worship, which is also a historic property, um, to uh, start this voluntary uh, program. Um, we worked out some uh, in- initial kinks in linking um, an building's um, uh, account with ours, so we can actually see their data and track it going forward. Um, Uh, But the data collected again will be used to identify interventions uh, to help improve energy efficiency. um, The hope being with um, we can identify either um, city um, uh, grants or uh, utility rebate programs to help um, um, reduce energy usage again. So any comments or uh, questions?
0: Um, well, I have, I guess, m- this is Ian and Lynch. My questions are, like, are there, are there any, um, do you have any, like, a goal for the number of buildings or businesses we hope to get in in this first year?
3: Yeah, yeah, we do. <laughs> um, so we looked out two years. Um, we'd like to benchmark 12 properties across a varied building types to, within the first year. And then we'd like continued participation um, of at least nine properties because uh, we did find um, in other cities that have benchmarking programs that um, a certain number of of, uh, uh, participants drop out or either um, stop um, entering their uh, data after uh, setting it up. So um, at year two, we'd like continued participation of nine properties and provide energy saving recommendations um, or resources to at least three properties. Uh, we'd also like to host a data camp event to facilitate participation uh, by additional properties. Um, this would be uh, um, a situation where um, building or business owners would come with their um, energy uh, or utility bills in hand, and staff would help uh, get them set up um, at that time.
0: That's, that's great. I love seeing, like, a, a goal. Um, is this something, I don't know whether I ask you, Sarah, or you, Danielle, like (laughs) can that be included in the equity toolkit in the future like you know the beginning sort of says like what are the goals and i find it hard to kind of track the importance of a particular project when we don't have that sense like how's it tying all the way back up to the climate action and like reducing greenhouse gases and then like how are we actually going to know like if we're seeing the progress we expect to see, because we're not expecting to see 100% of buildings. So then we would feel like failures, you know, and we wouldn't, like, we just don't have any expectation of what we're trying to achieve.
5: Yeah.
1: Um, yeah, the question's actually well-timed. We've started having some discussions about ways we might better streamline that equity toolkit, so we can take a look and take account that question as well.
0: Yeah, because then I also think, I mean... And in the toolkit it sort of talks about the main beneficiaries of this are the or the stakeholders, are the um building owners and the employees. But if the long term impact or hope is to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and also the the stakeholders, the, the the beneficiaries of the project are much broader and hit across different constituencies. So
6: Yeah, because yeah. you were saying in the, in the current um, kind of first sheet on that equity uh, implementation toolkit, I think the desired outcome is pretty broad, generally, but you're, you're saying there is more specificity
3: for this initial mm-hmm. kind of pilot. So yeah, that makes sense. And I think we were thinking it's difficult um, with the equity toolkit to identify all the stakeholders now, not knowing who would participate in the voluntary program.
1: So can I just ask a point of clarification? Yeah. Um, is the request that we take the goals that are listed in the memo and make sure they match up with the goals that are listed in the equity toolkit? Or is it that the goals in the equity toolkit should be listed more prominently, like rework the toolkit itself?
0: Oh, I just meant like when we are filling out the toolkit for these types of projects that we put, I if there was, if those goals were stated, for like a certain number of buildings, I missed it. So I just mean like when to have the specificity of those goals and put them in there, because then I imagine you'll come back and report to us how the first year went. And it'll be helpful to have that reference.
1: Okay. And you would prefer to see them in the toolkit versus where they are now, which is in the memo.
0: Oh. <laughs> yes. Are they? They're in the. They are listed out there. Mm-hmm. Oh. Uh, I guess what I mean, I guess I would use the toolkit to sort of like look at the parameters of the project, and then I would think we would use that in the future to see were we right? Did we get in touch with the right stakeholders? Did we do the things? So I would like to see them there.
1: Okay, we'll continue thinking through it. Thanks for that feedback.
0: Or like keep it consistent, I guess. Yeah.
1: Thank you. Um, Next up, we have, and Unless there are any other questions about the Energy Benchmarking Program? Great. All right. Um, Megan is going to give us a little update on Climate Fest.
2: Yeah. So as you can see, the schedule is laid out there with the locations and times of Climate Fest. Um, I just want to thank Michelle, Michael, and Jamie for volunteering their time uh, to be at four of the six events. I really appreciate it. Um, Another thing we wanted to bring your attention to is um, those of you who lived in Iowa City, hopefully you received a mailer um, that was put together by um, our team, especially Diane in the back here. Um, If you would like a mailer or you don't live in Iowa City, we have extras. Uh, That kind of goes over a ton of programs, um, like the installation grant, Of course, Climate Fest and then other things the city has done. And then additionally, we have these really awesome Goldie sticker sheets and they feature the campaigns for the first year. If you would like one of those, I have them up here. Um, Are there any questions about Climate Fest? It is next week. So it's coming up.
1: And to be clear, we're giving out the sticker sheets at the various events during the week. But if for some reason you were unable to make it to the events and would like a sticker sheet, I know this is something we discussed when we outlined the marketing plan. Um, you can talk to Megan afterward and get one.
0: Is there any help you still need, like places where you need commissioners? or?
2: Um, I think the events that we really needed help with are covered. Um, we... Have more than enough help on Monday um, and then Saturday if you, if you would like to um, help with the EV car show, we can. Or if you have an electric vehicle and want to sign up, um, that will help. We have 19 out of 25 spots filled for that right now.
1: And really the biggest help, you know, is uh, in your charge in the bylaws to help advocate for these programs in the community. So hopefully you're talking to friends and neighbors and colleagues about it, and helping us drum up attendance.
2: Yeah, it's free and family friendly every event. So any other questions? Great. Thanks again to Michelle, Jamie and Michael.
0: All right. Moving on to unfinished and ongoing business, we have first up is the wastewater digester. Yeah.
1: Um, So I'll just give you a little background. We realized today in talking that there are only two current members of the commission, one of whom isn't here, who were present for the original discussion. Um, So just a little context in the climate action plan, you may recall, there was a um, one of the action items was to conduct a methane capture feasibility study for our landfill and wastewater treatment plant. That study was completed and the results were presented to the Climate Action Commission in March of 2021. At that time, the commission um, took a look at the cost, the potential cost for the project, which would have been one of the largest bond issues in Iowa City history, and felt that the money could be better spent on other projects. Since then, of course, things have changed, and one of the other things that was discussed in that is that we would return to it periodically um, to check in and see if other conditions had shifted. Um, A couple things happened that you're gonna hear about today. One, of course, is the rollout of the IRA incentives. Um, that enabled us to go back and take a look and do some recalculating on the feasibility of the project. Uh, It's now the feeling of the staff, and you're going to get some more details on this, that it is a potentially viable project. And so um, before we go to city council for final approval, we want to make sure that the Climate Action Board is on board with it as well um, so that we don't run into some hiccups when it goes to council where they say, but wait, the Climate Action Commission said no. So really actually very exciting. We're excited to have um, representatives here who've been working on that project to take you through some slides that you would have received in advance. Um, We're gonna bring them up to the podium now and I'll let them introduce themselves and we'll go through the new information.
7: Hello, my name is Randy Wirtz. I'm an engineer with Strand Associates. Uh, I've been working with the city for the last few years on planning. Um, Happy to be here. I appreciate your attention, so. Um, I, do you all have the presentation on your screens in front of you? Yes. You do, okay, all right. So um, we'll be talking about the renewable natural gas production and high-strength waste co-digestion project. It's a little bit different than was previously studied, but but not too different, and I'll go through some of the, the differences here, so next slide, please. So a few definitions. I know not everybody here is a wastewater treatment plant expert. So um, if we say WWTF, that's the treatment facility. Biogas, I think everybody knows what that is, but that's it's a mixture of gases that's produced by a digestion process at the treatment plant. It's, it's Most of it's comprised of essentially natural gas that you get from your tap or for your uh, furnace or whatever in your home. Renewable natural gas is RNG, so that is just natural gas that you'd use in your home, but it's produced in a renewable way, so it's a, a byproduct of this biogas cleansed to produce RNG, so it's completely usable in anything that you use natural gas in. And then the IRA is the Inflation Reduction Act, and I think everybody knows what that is, but it was passed in 2022. It's currently being implemented. It's not been fully uh, implemented yet. There's still guidance coming out, but we know enough to know approximately how much money the city should be uh, able to get from that. Next slide, please. So the project history, as as everybody knows here, the 2018 Climate Action and Adaptation Plan um, that led to a 2020 methane feasibility study, which, which Sarah just mentioned. Um, in 2022, we, uh, Strand, the company I worked for, conducted a digestion facilities plan, which reevaluated that 2020 plan because conditions had changed. And then in 2023, we went, took that to the next step of conceptual design, really to put better costs to it. And I'll walk through each of these now. Go ahead. So the, fee- the previous feasibility study as was indicated, it did indicate that it was not economically viable to proceed with that project. There was a very, very long payback associated with it, so very capital intensive, not enough revenue, and it just didn't make sense at the time. So what's changed? Um, There was a biogas data discrepancy that was noted in our most uh, recent study, so we did note that there was a discrepancy in some of the data. It actually, the the volumes were greater than what was being used in in that report, so In this in this case, more biogas does generate more revenue, and it does make it more economically viable. So that was a positive thing that was discovered. And then again, the Inflation Reduction Act funding uh, that is now available um, will provide a significant amount of revenue for the funding for the project. Next slide, please. So we reevaluated the following options to use the biogas. We looked at. Continuing to use it in your buildings and and process heat, the the gas is currently being used on site, but only about 40 to maybe 50% of it at times is being used. The rest of it is just being flared, so it's it's going up in smoke, so to speak. We looked at cogeneration, and that's producing electricity and heat from burning it in an engine. So, that they could use that energy on site, the electricity on site, as well as reuse the heat that's generated on site. So, we, we looked at that as an option. And then we looked at renewable natural gas, as, which is the topic of this discussion. Um, that's highlighted in yellow because that was the selected alternative. It had the best financial incentives, best financial payback. Uh, so, it made the most sense in this case. The other box here in yellow is high strength waste addition to benefit local businesses and industries. So, what this means is, is A lot of food industries, breweries and other things like that have a high strength waste that they need to get rid of. They typically don't just put it down the sewer because it's very expensive. So it will be hauled somewhere else to treat or sometimes to put on the land. Um, The land application is becoming less uh, prominent and so these facilities are now taking it to treatment plants like Iowa City or others. Davenport does this, Dubuque does this, uh, Des Moines does this. Um, They haul their high strength waste which might be high strength carbon waste, sugar waste, it might be fat oils, and greases from sewer systems, um, things like that. They'll haul it directly to a digester to digest with the rest of the material and produce more gas. And as I mentioned previously, more gas means more revenue um, and reduces carbon footprint from, from these industries. So um, next slide, please. So then that appeared to be viable, so we took the next step to take it to the conceptual design. And what this means is we just put better costs to everything. We had more surety in the, in the costs. Um, <clears throat> We wanted to demonstrate that it was economically viable and, and we did that. The total project cost is around 15 million for, for this overall uh, project. It has a direct payback of about 10 to 15 years. So it's not like a slam dunk two year payback where anybody would invest in it. It's a 10 to 15 year payback, a little bit longer. On the municipal side of things, it's a it's a reasonable payback. However, there are, it is a market that, we're, that you'd be getting into uh, and markets do and will change. Um, and so there are option, there are alternatives, alternative market conditions that could lead to very long paybacks, greater than 30 years even. So it's not, again, it's not a guaranteed 10 to 15 year payback. I wanna make that very, very clear. Um, but it does appear under, under most conditions the payback would be in that, in that range of 10 to 15 years. And in, included in that is about a $3 million rebate from the Inflation Reduction Act that, that this project would be eligible. That number could increase. We don't think it'll be lower than that. Uh, that could increase depending on the final guidance from the IRS and, and the federal government um, as to what all is going to be included in that package, because it still really hasn't been fully defined yet. So this gets into the market risk, and what we're showing here is, is this is dollars per per RIN, and a RIN is how you measure renewable natural gas. So the orange line is, is what the, ga- the gas is that's being produced now, the value of that, so you can see it's, it's ranged anywhere from Less than a dollar to more than three dollars per unit here. Currently, the, the value is right about three dollars, so it's about as high as it has been, um, and it's at a very attractive rate right now. That's if it was stayed at three dollars, everybody would say, Yeah, let's do it because it would have a much, much lower payback. In our analysis, we assume two dollars and 31 cents for that, for that D3 gas that's being produced. So we're, we're using, I don't know if that's 70 percent of what the, what the value is now. Um, just to be on the conservative side. People do expect the values to stay high, uh, but again, there's, there's no guarantee. The, the blue line is the gas that would be produced, the value of the gas that's being produced from the material that's trucked into the plant, that high-strength material. So it's valued at a lower rate, and that just gets into the federal regulations. Uh, I won't get into that kind of detail now. It's valued at a lower um, value. Uh, But you could produce a lot of gas that way so it does generate a lot more gas and so the sum of those then when you add it all up makes sense to to do both of those projects to take the gas that you're currently making as well as make more gas from high strength waste. And high-strength waste receiving is just exactly what it sounds like. You'd actually be trucking waste to the facility. It's normally from local industries or local uh, breweries and and those types of entities that have these materials. And there's a lot of entities in in the Quad Cities and even in this area that have this type of material. It might be brought in from from, um, sewer system maintenance companies that, that have a lot of fat soils and greases from either collections from restaurants and things like that. Again, all that waste has to go somewhere, and the the city providing these facilities and utilizing your existing infrastructure that's already there to treat it, will generate tipping fees in the form of accepting this waste and also will allow you to generate more gas so trucks would be brought in they'd be stored in silos on the at the plant something like this some of the material would be screened because it has a lot of garbage and trash in it uh, to protect the downstream equipment so this is actually I'm sorry this is actually a picture of the Des Moines facility Des Moines is one of the biggest in the nation in terms of doing this type of um, operation uh, very successfully and they're producing gas and injecting it into the pipeline just like we're proposing here for Iowa City. Uh, the Renewable Natural Gas Pipeline, it's about 2,300 feet to the utility connection with American uh, Energy, um, and it's all on city property, which is nice. So this is the treatment plant here south of the city, and it'd be a small, actually just a one-inch diameter uh, underground line that would be run 2,300 feet to connect into the Mid American system there. Um, the city would, to be determined, the city will have to pay for and or own this pipeline, Uh, the connection here would be owned by MidAmerican and they would design and and build that connection. And then the city would provide gas to MidAmerican under a long-term contract. So just a couple more slides. There's a lot of words in these last ones, but I did want to be clear about these. Um, We took a look at the 2018 Climate Action and Adaptation Plan and these are the four items that we thought merited some discussion uh, and how these projects might might uh, address those uh, these actions. So the first one is increase on-site renewable energy systems and electrification. <clears throat> this doesn't necessarily produce energy that you're going to use at the plant, um, but it does increase on-site renewable energy production. Um, so in a, in a in a way, it d- it definitely meets this uh, by producing renewable energy on-site. Um, on under task two, reduce the city's vehicle emission footprint. This is not currently I don't think this is the direction the city is going, but it could. Um, this would re- mean using the natural gas that's being produced in CNG vehicles. So, if the city decided to go in that direction, it would, you'd have a readily source of renewable natural gas that could generate or be put right into CNG vehicles and used uh, in that way. Action 3.5, reduce waste at City facilities. I think this one's fairly obvious. Currently, you're wasting about half of the biogas that's being produced, um, so it's just going up the flare, so that would significantly reduce that amount, that, that waste. And then Action Item 3.7 is it's really a follow-up to that 2020 study. The um, City wanted to continue to look at that, and that's what we did in this project, and it does appear at this time that, it, that it's a viable project. And the last slide, please. <coughs> so the conditional recommendations, Um, are to proceed with the RNG and high-strength waste project subject to the following assumptions and conditions. And the reason we're we're caveating this is because the city doesn't need to do this project. It's it's not being driven by any regulations. Um, It's not being driven by anything other than the city's desire uh, for sustainability and climate GHG reductions, as well as it does have a financial payback. So it becomes much more of a business decision by the city to proceed with this project. I want to note um, this project will not directly reduce the city's carbon footprint or GHG emissions um, because any renewable energy that's produced will be used by someone else outside of of the plant uh, fence line for sure and possibly outside of the city limits. So it doesn't actually directly reduce the city's carbon footprint. It does, however, reduce global carbon footprint. So it's it's a net benefit to the environment. (coughs) Um, it's obviously one condition is the city is committed to these types of projects, even if the financial payback doesn't pan out as expected. You know, we mentioned 10 to 15 years, it could be 20 or 30 years, um, and and again, it would still have a payback, it would just be a long payback, because it, w- it will ultimately reduce costs at the plant. And then <clears throat> the city desires to reuse biogas from the treatment plant as an important uh, component of this. Um, this, the value today, uh, together with the financial incentives through the IRA, does generate a kind of a condition now that might not be seen again. You know, the, right now, we have, you have the ability to obtain some financing through the IRA, and, and who knows if, if that's going to be there in the future. It, it absolutely won't be in the future in this form. Maybe there will be another form of funding in 10 years, but, but who knows. And then finally, um, the IRA, even though the guidance still isn't fully implemented or, or detailed, um, they do have a deadline. So this project needs to be under construction by the end of next year. And there's some very specific requirements for being under construction. Um, and that would mean we would need to start with the design of it very, very soon, like this month or next month or for sure the following month, <laughs> if, if at all possible. So. Um, yeah, so those are kind of the caveats to, the, to, to that recommendation. And I think that's my last slide, right? Okay.
5: Questions? First question I had was what was the original payback period when the first go around?
7: So we didn't do that study. Um, I don't know that it actually had a payback.
5: I believe it was 45 years was the original payback, um, and that was based on uh, some mayors on their part, but it was also a di- I, don't, I don't think we were actually looking at gas injection. They're actually looking at energy production on the plant site. Mm-hmm.
6: Yeah, because that included the landfill yep. side That's of things to do, too, right? Yeah.
5: I, I'm Ron Kanucki. I'm the public works director. So. Mm-hmm.
1: <clears throat> I was wondering how long the whole project would take to implement.
7: Great question. Um, the the construction would be about two years. Uh, it kind of depends on construction projects have been really long sometimes. Um, we're seeing an improvement in that area, um, but we'd expect about a two-year construction project.
8: And are the digesters electric? Well, how how do well, they? Well,
7: the digesters are just tanks, and and you heat them um, using. Well, currently they heat them um, with digester gas so they're burning digester gas to produce heat they're heating hot water that water gets transferred to the to the digesters uh, in the form of heat and then there's electric mixers that mix the tanks to to just keep all of the contents uh, mixed up
6: Um, How would the city do we understand how the city would pay for the upfront costs of the construction is this through bonding is it taking away from other projects?
5: In our, in our last capital program that we put up before council, um, we had identified revenue bonds to pay for this project. Um, we're already going to do a digester upgrade as, as a part of plan improvements and so we had also planned for this as a part of that also. So it'll be revenue bonds. Okay. So then during that payback period or after that payback period, is that a source of income for the, the city at that point because of product coming from restaurants?
7: Yeah, it is. We've estimated the net revenue from this is about a million dollars a year. It's between 900 and 1.1 million, depending on what you're assuming. So, it, depending on how you want to pay back the loans, you know, it will definitely generate a net revenue. Either that could be either that could be paid directly into, you know, paying down the debt quicker, or or it could be used for other projects. Really, from the first year of operation. But you're right. After after the initial payback, it's not like this thing will run free forever. There's going to it'll you know, right now there will be a net of about a million dollars per year and we expect that to go up after it's, it's paid off.
1: You had mentioned the markets also. I don't think I understand RINs very
0: well. No. Um, are there any drivers that cause fluctuation in the prices? Or large drivers?
7: Small drivers? It's a, yes, um, there certainly are lots of drivers in, in any market. I would say in this market um, the drivers in the, in the past have been political. Uh, certainly, um, the w- when b- prior to 2020, the market was low and stayed low. It was actually high and then it kind of gradually decreased. And as soon as the administration changed, it, it went up and it stayed high. Um, it's had some dips since then. Most, most of that is related to, it it's a very complicated market and I'm not an expert in the market, but I do know that what, what creates the market is the federal government created the market in tw- 2005 and their goal was to, to, to replace transportation fuel with renewable fuel. That was the goal of the program. And it took a long time before it really started taking off. But each year they have a, uh, they require folks like BP and Exxon and the, the fossil fuel energy producers to either have renewable portfolios or to buy credits like this. And that's how the market was created. Um, in 2014, the, they changed the rules to allow gas that cities are producing at their treatment plants to be credited as a very high value fuel. And so that became a source of revenue for folks like you and a source of um, the ability to buy these things for, for other entities. Um, so th- it's supposed to apply to all of the fossil fuel producers but what happened especially prior to 2020 is a lot of waivers were granted because I think probably because of the political nature of, of the situation. Um, so that happened could it happen again certainly uh, but that did ma- that did drive prices lower. worldwide there's a huge market for this um, it's outside of the it's outside of politics really it's outside of at least government um, and big corporations are driving this worldwide. Um, and so even if, even if the federal government's program went away, there's still a program to sell your gas. And in fact, that lower value gas that I mentioned, there's a good chance you would sell that off of the federal market and to the more worldwide green energy market because the values there are comparable and they're long-term commitments. So it's a 10 or 15-year term that you could get on something like that versus a one or two-year term on the, on the higher value ones. So there's, there's a lot to get into there. There's a lot to unpack, but um, it's, it's good discussion.
1: Thank you. The whole thing is really exciting. Um, I'll I'll just add, I think it's worth noting that those kinds of market fluctuations are not unfamiliar to city operations and in many ways parallel what we see with like a recycling program where um, part of the... uh, total financial picture for that relies on our ability to sell our glass, our ability to sell our cardboard, our ability to sell plastic, and bring some of that revenue back in to help support the program. So um, it can be a little intimidating to hear something like, oh, you know, it may fluctuate. And, um, but I think it's worth noting that that's not necessarily unusual or something that um, city operations are unfamiliar with.
7: No. The, the other thing to note is that there's a there's a whole private equity side of this, and there's a lot of investing going into it. We're, we're doing a project in Waterloo right now. The city's not gonna own it. They're gonna have so, a third party own it, and there's a lot of interest in that, and a lot of private e- equity wants to be invested in these types of operations because of the worldwide markets, really, because they're pretty stable worldwide.
6: This is Krieger. So- as far as I understand it, none of it's really dependent on local demand, as long as it's going That's to the correct.
7: market. Okay. Yeah, nothing. Yeah, has nothing to do with local demand at all. Yep.
0: Okay. This is Aynon Lynch. Um, you mentioned that the the greenhouse gas impact wouldn't help our inventory, but that it would make a difference mm-hmm. on the global inventory. Do you have an idea of what that impact is?
7: I don't. I can certainly we can certainly provide that um, I, off the top of my head. I, I don't. We did not do that assessment.
9: This is Pardon me. This is Sturdivant. I had two questions. One is that fifteen million dollars is that with or without the rebate? Is that
7: the fifteen? That, that's with without the rebate.
9: Okay, so it could be essentially lower depending on whatever that rebate ends up being.
7: Yes, the the city will have to finance the full amount of the project. And then after it's in operation, you can get a rebate for it. So that's what, yeah, that's our estimates at this time.
9: And then for actually building, is there any additional road impacts or anything? Is there going to be more trucking happening on that road? And is that going to then cause other problems for? There certainly
7: will be more trucks. Um, How many is yet to be determined. Um, You know, you might bring in a a few trucks a day. It's not going to be 30 trucks a day or anything like that. But certainly that is an important component and and should be budgeted. That's not in our budget right now, so that's a a great point.
6: Uh, this is Krieger again. Are there any other legal constraints or complications that have been identified?
7: Um, not, none that I'm aware of. I don't know if anybody else has identified anything, but no.
6: Sorry, Krieger again. And just to clarify, this is diverting essentially existing a service that already exists to a different location. Um, I guess that kind of goes to the question about trucking, but it, the volume, essentially, is, is going to be very similar, but you'd probably be wanting to grow the kind of the waste. All of that's going somewhere right now. It is. Right, Yes,
7: okay. it's all going somewhere, yes. And, I mean, the, the goal here is to utilize the existing infrastructure, existing digesters that have already been built and are operating and will be rehabbed as part of the project to, to their fullest potential.
1: You know, a great example of that as we are thinking through oh. it is, oh, oh. If it's not the lights turning off, it's the computer. Um, A great example of that is let's take the feedstock from Big Grove as an example, right? So they've got the grain that gets used to, um, that's fermented to produce the beer, and then the grain gets sent somewhere to be digested. Right, and very similar to the project we funded last year for Big Grove, where we were capturing the carbon dioxide on site to use in the brewing process to reduce the transportation emissions associated with the trucks bringing that in. Um, this is an opportunity for us on the back end of that to reduce the trucks going out from Big Grove to take that material somewhere else to be digested so that that trip gets lessened. That's something else that wouldn't necessarily show up in our greenhouse gas emissions inventory locally, but still has a broader and important impact.
5: So that waste, then, is that restricted to just Iowa City, or is that, like, uh, the corridor? Like, where could all
7: that be coming from that would go down there?
2: The
1: feedstock material for it.
7: Yeah, yeah, I mean... so Des Moines brings feedstocks in from out of state. Even you know it's 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 whoever is going to be the lowest cost disposal place for that feedstock is is where it will be trucked to. So it depends on what your tipping fees are. Um, Muscatine does a fair amount of this. They have a fairly high tipping fee. They still get a lot of volume because they have local industry right there, big industries right in town. Um, they can pretty much charge whatever they want, and they could probably get it. Uh, Dubuque does this, their, their rates are frankly too low and they have a lot of local material so they're talking about increasing their rates right now. But it, it ideally it comes locally because that's gonna be your surest form of feedstock and it's, it's important to have consistency with these things. So you don't want one truck today and six trucks tomorrow and then no trucks for two weeks. Um, it's good to feed these things consistently. So ideally, someone local that has a consistent source, consistent volume, and, and we'll, we'll just kind of enter into a long-term arrangement with you. So, so, oh,
5: sorry. Sorry, to kind of expand on that more, and it goes back to um, number one in there. Is there the potential that this could increase greenhouse gas emissions? It says it won't reduce oh. it. I can't remember the language exactly, but is there the potential that it would increase it?
7: Because of trucking costs. Correct. Well, certainly, if someone is hauling it from a long long distance uh it it could have a negative impact on that um, i I mean that's an important if this if the city desires and that's a driver which obviously obviously it is, then maybe you don't accept waste from anywhere outside of thirty miles away or something like that. that's certainly a potential
0: Is all of this kind of waste currently going somewhere where it's being captured or are there Um, Are there places where it gets digested and just flared or? Yes,
7: both of the above. I mean, some of it will be going to digesters. We don't don't know where it's all going right now. Mm -hmm. Um, I do know one of the most significant sources that could come here is currently Mm -hmm. being trucked to Illinois, um, to near Rockford. Um, So it's a long trucking distance. some of it goes to land, I'm sure. In Iowa, that's not as common. In, in Wisconsin, it's very common. Becoming less common, the state regulators are typically get, trying to get away from land application of of industrial wastes. Um, I think in 10 years, it'll be very rare to have anybody put it on the land directly. Um, so it, it's a combination. There's, there's some agricultural lagoons that, that produce methane um, that some of this material is now going to. Some of them reuse the gas, some of them don't. So it's it's a real mix. It, it would be hard to quantify, I think, at least uh, until you're in, in agreement with somebody that, yeah, you're going to take their waste for sure and you know where it's going now and, and then could do the math behind it.
0: Yeah, I'm, uh, yeah, I was mostly just thinking if if by creating this facility, if we're just rerouting waste that's already getting captured somewhere else or if we are also having the potential to capture the methane from waste that is otherwise you know, just...
7: Yeah, it's a, it's being, a great, great point. Uh, we didn't do significant... So we're talking a little, <clears throat> little bit talking about two different things. Uh, the trucked waste is one thing, mm-hmm. and, and the, the viability of the project is there with or without the trucked waste. Um, if you're not bringing in trucked waste, then the math is much easier. You know, you're, you're burning so much, and you're, you're, you're using it, some on-site, and the rest is just going up the flare. Um, The rest of that, I mean, you're bringing up excellent points. If if the city wants to be sure that this is actually reducing greenhouse gas emissions, then we do need to know where everything is going now and how far it's being trucked now versus what it would be in the future. And, again, that's a little bit of a separate issue, but it's an important component of the trucked waste issue, and, and it's an excellent point.
0: Sarah, can you remind us of the end goal of this discussion today?
1: Uh, The end goal of this, we'd like to, um, we would like someone hopefully to move to approve this project moving forward and then take a vote on it. um, Saying that, and I should say, our expectation of you, of course, is not that. you say the technical analysis is sound, but that as described, this project is in fitting with the climate action goals and the values of the community around it, if that makes sense. So you don't have to, you don't have to say, this guy seems legit. <laughs> you <know? laughs> um, your goal is just to say this project does it or does it not sound like it fits with the climate action plan and the goals uh, and values of the community.
6: Right, because it's kind of a, it's essentially a recommendation. It's our it's our feedback to the city council. Yes, correct. Okay.
9: I have one final well one on my end. One final question: Is there any other impact to the site regarding? You say it's drilling a hole in the ground. Is there adding a whole bunch of other things around the
7: area, or? So yeah, I don't remember what I said about this, but essentially the site. I mean, we don't need any new sites. So near the digesters now, we'll site a facility. It'll be—I don't know—I don't know. It'll—it'll it'll be a, probably a fenced area that's 100 by 100 feet, something like that. Um, this equipment would sit on a pad. We don't exactly know what it's going to look like yet. It probably will have some screening around it to make it look nice because it's a very nice-looking plant. Um, but it'll just be equipment sitting outside on a on a skid, and then with some screening around it. So it, it's not a significant like construction project on site, not a lot of new buildings or anything like that associated with this. And then from there, it's just an underground small one-inch diameter pipe connecting into the uh, mid-American system.
6: I mean, essentially, you're reducing community, local community impact by not flaring off the extra material, right? I mean, it's actually an improvement. That's true. Potentially? okay.
1: On a side note, Megan, could you pop into the communications office and let them know we seem to have had a power problem with our laptop? <laughs>
6: <laughs> I guess I don't know how the rest of the commission members are feeling, but I, I would be comfortable moving forward with a recommendation to, to, that this aligns with the Climate Action Adaptation Plan um, and recommending that to the city council. Was that a move? I have to have a formal language here, don't I, as part of the motion. <laughs> uh, Krieger moves that the... Uh, what's the name of the project? Wastewater <laughs> <Officially>.
0: digester.
6: <laughs> uh, Krieger moves that the renewable natural gas production and high-strength waste co-digestion <laughs> project uh, fits with the, within the goals of the Climate Action and Adaptation Plan.
5: Second. Grimm.
0: And do we have any more discussion on that motion before we vote?
1: Um, I'll just say as a result of the vote, what will happen next is staff will prepare a memo saying that the Climate Action Commission voted whichever way you choose to vote on this and that will make the recommendations subject to the last slide that you saw, which I wish you could see right now, but (laughs) (laughs) imagine it. (laughs)
8: I do have a question. Um, being newer and working for MidAmerican Energy, am I allowed to vote on this since it would be part of the uh, process? Just want to make sure I'm not breaking any
2: rules.
1: Um, I think as a representative of MidAmerican, it might make sense for you to rec- recuse yourself from voting on this particular one. Okay. Thank you for being so thoughtful in asking.
0: Any other points of clarification or questions, tweaks to the wording of the motion? Then all in favor? Aye. 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 Any opposed? All right. If the motion passes, we will recommend this to council.
1: Thanks so much for your thoughtful questions and this really exciting project. And uh, thanks to the public works staff and to um, Strand for being here to talk about it. Don't feel like you have to stick around.
0: <laughs> All right, moving on to Neighborhood and Development Service Report. Yeah. If you can talk through your chattering teeth.
1: Um, I'm not quite sure what to do since we can't bring up your, <laughs> your presentation.
8: I'll wing it until it comes up.
1: All right, sounds good.
8: Hi, I'm Tracy with Neighborhood and Development Services. Um, I'm the director of the department. Every year, um, we've done this for the last few years, we do an annual report, which is a great summary of what accomplishments our department does, and great for the public to understand what different divisions and what we do, and what we fulfill, what we do for the city. So. In our report, I, we were just going to go line by line and talk about it, but um, I will fill in, we have a beginning intro section, a little bit about what is, uh, what is Iowa City, and the important part here, which will tap into what Danielle's going to talk about, is that um, right now, in 2020, our census reports that we had 74,828 residents. We If you project that using census figures, by 2030, we'll have a population of 85,068, which is an increase of 10,240 residents. So how do we plan for those residents coming in? We have had a shift out to North Liberty and Tiffin in recent years. We are the second fastest growing community in Iowa, second only to Des Moines. So it has planning ramifications for us and about how we do that. the demand goes up and the supply doesn't, we have a high cost housing market. So if that continues, we'll continue to have a higher cost housing market, which has problems for affordability for a lot of our residents. Um, what else is important? NDS is an apartment of about 50 people. We have three different divisions within, our, within the department. So we have development services, and Danielle Sitzman is our development services coordinator. She's going to talk about the built environment, which I think you guys are going to concentrate on. We also have Um, Danielle's department is urban planning and building. We also have neighborhood services, which is three divisions. It's the housing authority, um, uh, housing inspection and community development. It's all that grant funding that we get through the federal or state government. Our budget in NDS last year was about 42 million. Our typical budget is only about 20 million. That 20 million was just the the resources that were coming in from federal and state government um, for pandemic relief. And then our last division is the Metropolitan Planning Organization of Johnson County. We are the transportation planners planners for the county. Um, so we'll talk a little bit about that. And I will go, I'm gonna cover neighborhood services and MPO quickly and then hopefully the computer's back on for Danielle's presentation. I'll start with neighborhood services and housing inspection. We inspect about 20,000 rental units on a Biannual basis. Some of those units we inspect every year. Um, recently, as part of our Invest Health initiative, which we started back in 2016, we're trying to reduce the health disparities amongst low-income um, residents in Iowa City. We implemented radon changes, so now about 3,800 homes, single-family and duplexes in our in our in our city, had to be tested for radon to get a rental permit. And if they tested above the EPA threshold, um, they had to get mitigated. This was important because I was in a I think they call it a high alert red zone. We have more radon nationally. I think we have about six times the uh, national average. And it's the number one cause of lung cancer among non smokers. So, part of our rental permit, we made those changes. We also made some changes, not regarding health, but regarding neighborhood stabilization. When the state, um, back in 2006, I think it was 17, we could no longer, we used to zone by occupancy. And the state basically said we could no longer zone by familial status. And so we had to make a lot of changes. There was concern that in our downtown neighborhoods especially that we'd have um, a lot of redevelopment prof- uh, potential, a lot more bedrooms, a lot more housing um, to accommodate students. So we implemented a lot of changes. Radon was one of those changes when we talk about safety of neighborhoods. Um, and then uh-huh, there's a whole bunch of other things that we track. Uh, probably make more sense if you're actually looking at the slide. <laughs> I, still need help.
1: I think we got it, Lily. Oh, great.
8: Can you fast forward to page 21?
1: i making progress.
8: Well, no, we're going to go back with Danielle. Um, So um, our division is also the person that tracks all the neighborhood complaints that we receive, snow, grass, garbage, vehicles parked in the lawn. So we get about, it ranges from 1,700 to about 3,000 complaints every year that we, we resolve. Um, those key dates on the right side is about what zoning changes we implemented due to the change in uh, how we zoned properties. Um, you can skip through. We'll go to the Housing Authority. All right, the Housing Authority. We um, are you familiar with Housing Choice Voucher Program? Housing vouchers. Okay. So we implement a program throughout three-county area. We're in Johnson County, Washington County, and Iowa County. We have about 1,500 vouchers that we administer. We have 86 public housing units in Iowa City. Um, and we provide about 8.1 million in landlord payments um, to landlords in, that, in, our, in our jurisdiction. So we're, we're very involved with affordable housing issues. And I always like to say, because there's a lot of misconceptions about the Section 8 Housing Choice Voucher Program, that if you go to the next page, that close to 60% of our voucher holders are either elderly or people with disabilities. Um, And then out of those that are families, less than 1% report um, welfare or FIP as their only source of income. So our families are working. They just don't make enough to to afford rental at our market. I always like to say that. Um, If you go to the next page. Next page. Um, Community development, that's where we administer all the federal grants, the community development block grant program, the home program. These resources have to be used to benefit low to moderate income households, so we do a lot of housing programs, we do a lot of um, public facility type projects, where example like free medical clinic, community crisis services, we provide funding for them to make brick and mortar type projects, and then every year we allocate money just for public services um, for our nonprofit community. we, we serve about 18 to 20 agencies every year and we provide funds for them to continue their mission. Um, we have a housing rehabilitation program. We've had this program for the last 40 years. We rehabilitate about 30 homes each year. So you have to be a low to moderate income homeowner and we provide anything from energy efficiency, new HVAC, roof replacements, window replacements, um, kitchen remodels, um, whatever is eligible under our federal funds, we do those type of projects. We have the South District Program, um, I think is the next slide, yep. um, where we've purchased 20, well, 11 duplexes, 22 units along Taylor, Sandusky, and Davis. We do extensive remodeling of those homes. We condo them so that we can sell them as individuals so we convert them from affordable rental to affordable home ownership, which we prioritize the neighborhood. So the first two homeowners that bought their units had lived in the neighborhood for almost 22 years. We also combined it with um, energy efficiency incentives from Climate Action to make them very um, energy efficient. And then next one. Then the Metropolitan Planning Organization, they are transportation planners and they are the metro area. So all of Johnson County, they Allocate our surface transportation funding. They administer the federal funds that get routed to CamBus, tran- Iowa City Transit, and Coralville. They prioritize the Bike Master Plan and make sure those that that is getting implemented. And then page 35. And they're also part of our what, what makes our roads safer. So they analyze traffic data. They look at our collisions. Our goal is always zero fatalities. We look at every fatality or major accident to see what we need to do to improve to get our roads safer in communities. We do traffic calming, um, and we keep those statistics from the DOT, the census. We do our own traffic counts throughout the county. And then the next one. We also look at vehicle miles traveled, so some of the climate action goals that you have, we're we're looking at from, like I said, DOT or census or other information that we can find. And I did a very quick overview so that we could go back to development services, and I think you had questions about the built environment. So Danielle, come up here, and can you go back up to development Mm -hmm. services?
4: All right,
8: so now you know the other two divisions, and now Danielle will talk about her division and then we'll be back for questions.
4: Thanks, Tracy. Again, my name is Danielle Sussman. I'm the development services coordinator. So development services, as Tracy mentioned, is two different work groups. One is urban planning and the other is building inspections. So We'll start with urban planning and I'll kind of stop and give you some asides as we go through the report that um, things that aren't in here but maybe would help you understand what I'm talking about a little bit more. Um, A lot of our statistics are benchmarked on a 10-year running average so we look at uh, kind of backwards about 10 years and so a lot of the graphs and tables will mention how the last year that we uh, did the report on in 2022 compares that to that 10-year average. So urban planning is uh, the urban planning group I can go ahead, Sarah. They staff our boards and commissions related to urban planning. So it's a planning and zoning commission. There's also a specialty board, a board of adjustment. And then um, they also uh, staff the historic preservation commission. But urban planning uh, generally breaks out into two kinds of work. One is current planning. So it would be applications related to annexations and the land development process. And then the other aspect of planning is more long-range planning, so looking at comprehensive plans and um, the big picture holistic approach to um, um, anticipating and accommodating growth or trying to influence and control factors that are within our control. So just to talk a little bit about the basics of the land development process in case um, not everybody lives and breathes us every day. Um, there are some steps that land goes through in order to be, um, become part of the city and to have development on it. Um, The first step is being annexed into the city. So we do that voluntarily here in Iowa City. We don't go out and force um, landowners to become uh, incorporated into the city if they're in the county and they don't wanna come in. Um, Generally our approach has been to wait until they're interested in that and and approach us. Um, We see a certain number of um, landowners choose to do that over over the years, kind of looking back. It's generally about um, one annexation a year, anywhere from 20 to 50 acres at a time. In Iowa City, um, we don't see a lot of speculative housing, so things tend to stay what they are until there's a very firm idea in someone's head that they're going to change that. So a lot of the land is farmland, and it stays farmed up until the point that it's annexed in and then very quickly gets developed. That was a good thing for us, for Iowa City, with the last recession in the housing market. A lot of cities ended up with what they called zombie subdivisions, where that process had started speculatively, and there were a lot of developed lots sitting around out there, or even maybe half-started houses, and then there was no market for them. So Iowa City is a little more unique um, than a lot of the rest of the country in that way. When land comes into the city, it does need to be designated for a use. We call those uses zones or zoning. Um, So sometimes in combination with an annexation, there'll be a specific use declared, um, like the type of housing, the type of mix of commercial and housing that might be um, considered. Sometimes it's an interim zone. It's kind of just being held for a little while and might be just an interim zoning district. Regardless, before it can be developed, very specifically, they'd have to go through that zoning process. So we, uh, we track the number of zonings that happen um, in the city. Uh, sorry, i sorry, you can probably go ahead one. The zonings, and again, look back over that 10 year period. Um, we've seen zoning activity continue to remain low <coughs> and compared to that 10 year look back. Um, we only had eight in 2022. Normally we're averaging a little more than that, closer to 20, so it was an average of 18. Um, that's a little bit, since we're looking just back a 10 year period, that's a little bit of a um, skewed statistic because we did see very high rezoning activity in that 10 year look back, um, higher than average for its time. So, um, and that was really driven by some long range planning um, activity that the city engaged in to encourage redevelopment and encourage rezonings. So um, overall it has been low, but it's low a little bit just because we're looking back at it compared to a much higher uh, activity. Uh, period of time. Um, I'll talk a little bit about once it's rezoned, um, then they have to create lots for development. That's typically called subdividing or platting. Those lots are then um, created through that platting process. Typically, before something uh, like a home or a business gets built, there has to be some infrastructure built to those lots. So that's uh, public infrastructure like streets, water, and sewer, but it's also private utilities for uh, power. and that is all undertaken uh, by the developer. Um, they do all that, uh, those improvements in order to uh, develop those lots. And then the lots, if they're commercial lots or lots in specific parts of town would have a site plan review, which is to look at the layout of the site before a uh, permit for construction is uh, issued. Um, but then ultimately a building permit gets issued and for the actual construction of the structure. So that leads over a little bit more into building um, permitting and the building inspection division, but we'll just talk about subdivisions here um, specifically as uh, part of what urban planning does with their current planning work. Um, Looking at the creation of those lots, we've seen a big drop in the number of lots created. Um, That's likely um, connected to land availability and land cost. Um, If land isn't coming into the city, it's not being developed, it's not sitting there in inventory. So having too much inventory is a bad thing and having not enough in the pipeline is also a problem. So we identified in 2022 that um, there was a concern that the the subdivision process was not um, putting into inventory enough developed lots to uh, keep pace with the pace of building permits. And so there was likely to be, and we're seeing now in 2023, a decline in building permits as well. As Tracy mentioned, we keep an eye on the trend, the growth, population growth trends, and trying to accommodate um, housing as we need to, um, just just uh, just to um, just for the fact that that's a healthy thing for a city to do, but also because it, the balance of supply and demand affects pricing. So housing pricing has always been of concern in Iowa City. It's a desirable place to live, which drives up costs, but there's also a supply issue. So we've been tracking the supply issue as well, um, thinking about land coming in for subdivision. Probably cost of land is one of the largest factors for overall cost of housing. And again, supply and demand is where we see that imbalance most prominently. Um, So we've been looking at um, unmet need for housing um, and the timeframe is gonna take Uh, to deplete that inventory of uh, available lots. And whereas it might have been five to seven years in the past, we're looking at a much shorter um, depletion of those lots as close to two or three years. So Sarah, that might have been on slide 11, showing that um, anticipated um, residential lot subdivisions by type and the, the big drop. Um, I will back up and talk a little bit about long-range planning. So all of this land development uh, is part of the current planning work that the urban planners do. Um, Even though we may not have a lot of activity in annexation and rezoning, that doesn't mean we aren't busy. Um, Usually we take a breath when we can and look at our long-range plans because development is um, attuned to what those long-range plans might also be. Uh, signaling to developers that the community is interested in. Long-range plans would be like our comp plan, that's our most prominent one, but there's other district plans and other kinds of studies and data analysis that go into that. We're currently um, beginning uh, the comp plan overhaul process. Um, uh, To develop a comp plan is a multi-year process. Um, We're looking at about a year's worth of just formulating the request for proposals, reviewing those proposals, and getting the process started, and then then another couple years of actually doing the comp plan process work. The difference between a comp plan amendment that might happen sporadically over the years, just as projects kind of tweak a, a few things in the plan and an overhaul is the amount of public engagement. Uh, because it's a long range vision for the community, the public engagement is a key part of long range planning. So um, that would be something that we're uh, beginning to work on. 20, beginning of 2024 is really when we anticipate kicking off that comp plan process itself. Sarah, if we're not, can we get over to page 12? Great. So I'll talk a little bit about the building inspection um, work group also in our division. Um, Building inspections are the folks that um, review the building plans, go out and inspect the construction as it's underway, and we do track the statistics. Um, This report is actually out of date already Um, in 2023. This summer, we updated our building codes. So we're actually on um, the 2021 code cycle for the International Building and Residential Code, uh, which the city does control. We also control which version of the fire code we can adopt, and that has been updated to 2021 as well. For the rest of the codes you see listed there, we are unfortunately subject to what the state of Iowa adopts. Um, they are on the 21 cycle for plumbing and mechanical. Um, they are on the 17, still on the 17 version of the electric code, and they are stuck in the 2012 for the energy code. Unfortunately, um, we can't control that. We can't—I'm um, sure, as you know—the energy code. We can't be more restrictive or encourage more energy efficiency than the state lays out for us there. But uh, moving on to page 13, just talking about general permit activity again. <clears throat> we look back at that 10-year period. Um, and we look at the number of permits issued and the valuation of those permits. Um, Valuation is kind of a term of art for uh, this discussion. It means the estimated average construction cost of a project based on a standardized per square foot estimate using typical construction practices. So it's kind of a way of standardizing values across all building permits in all jurisdictions. But that's what we report out on, and that's what valuation means. Um, We've seen in that 10 year look back some interesting things happening. Obviously, we had pandemic impacts on construction. And then most recently coming out of pandemic, we've um, been tracking inflation and rising interest rates have also impacted home, uh, specifically um, home construction. We have seen a little, we did start to see a little bit of a rebound in our overall numbers post pandemic, but 22 and 23, we think, are the inflation and some other aspects are probably going to wipe out those gains. Um, So swings in activity are. um, are also influenced a little bit by, well, they're influenced by city policy. And so some of our city policies, as I mentioned, the increase in rezonings uh, encouraging redevelopment also impacted building permits. So if you're familiar with the downtown and riverfront crossings area, that was an area that the city uh, developed a plan, a long range plan for, to really encourage redevelopment and that, that was reflected in the permit activity in that area. But we break out our permit statistics into three main categories, um, single-family, multifamily, and then commercial. So let me talk a little bit about single-family. Our 10-year look back is anticipating about 130 units of single-family houses um, to be built per year. Um, That's bottomed out over the years as low as 80 or um, reached peaks as high as one the upper 70s. Um, What we're tracking for this year is very dire. Uh, Year-to-date for 2023, we were at 27. So, uh, what we thought was hopefully a rebound um, in 21 and 22, um, some of the effects going on in the market right now are really uh, taking that out to the to lower than we've seen before for certain. While that may stretch out our subdivision inventory, it could actually be a, si- a sign of that as well. Um, so. Interestingly enough, even though we got head low permit numbers in 22, valuations still looked healthy. But again, that's probably a sign of the inflation and the cost, additional cost of construction. Um, Sarah, why don't we look at 15? Uh, the other kind of single family housing that we track are duplexes. And duplexes have been, I'm not sure if that one shows it as startling as the next page. Duplexes of top left there, the orange is duplex construction compared to single family. We do not have duplex construction, um, have not had duplex construction for many, many years in the city of Iowa City, unlike a lot of our neighboring jurisdictions where it's a much more primary building type, Um, tends to be more affordable because you're buying a smaller unit, um, and we have not seen duplexes here in Iowa City. Um, that may be partly by design, um, but we've um, looked at that most recently with some code changes and think that um, lightening the regulation of duplexes would be a very <coughs> timely and good thing to engage in at this point. Um, what you tend to see when uh, new construction of single-family goes down is folks reinvesting in their current homes, so there's some valuation numbers <coughs> in our report that show that, yeah, that might be part of the recent valuation stayed high even though permit activity went down. Um, This page is primarily about multifamily, so let me move on to that. Um, We call multifamily development a little bit lumpy, um, and that's what the top right graph really shows, is that while the blue bars are doing one thing, the orange line's doing something else. Um, Really what that means is that you can have fewer projects with higher value, so they're lumpy in the fact that they um, might not show; they might have that difference in uh, those two metrics, but also that um, large single-family project or multifamily projects take many years to construct. So it's not a every year there's a new project. It's more like once every three, five years there's a new project, or there's two projects that bump that start off in one year and make one year look really big, but they don't finish at the same time. Um, But we have seen an increase in multifamily construction uh, that coincided again, like I said, with the riverfront crossings, um, redevelopment uh, plan, and um, rezonings. So really, a lot of our housing housing supply, multifamily has certainly supplied that. It's still, though, off the pace of what we need to accommodate future growth of population. Sarah, if you want to go ahead to 18, so the third category is all other construction besides single-family or uh, multifamily, so commercial buildings. Um, <clears throat> we have had, I talked a little bit about multifamily, but we have had other developments that, that were not as much downtown uh, apartment housing focused, and we've really seen a large increase in senior senior housing focused projects. Um, the next Avenue senior project on the east side of town. as well as the senior housing near Hickory Park, and then a proposed project that's gotten fairly long, far along in the development process called Western Homes. So we're seeing a lot of units developed either as senior independent housing um, in a variety of housing types, so anything from a patio home to an apartment, and then assisted and some skilled care, like memory care. So I think I will wrap that up, and if anybody has questions, I think we're ready for it.
6: This is Krieger. I have a series of questions. <laughs> um, what is our vacancy rate in Iowa City?
4: For rental? Yeah uh, you know we don't track that. Um, okay. That's something we can get uh, kind of through some of the uh, uh, real estate brokers and t- track track that. I've heard varying numbers. Um, a healthy vacancy rate is you know, 10. Uh, Iowa City's always been tighter than that, which is good or bad depending on the perspective of whether you want competition for units or not.
6: And, um, you know, you had mentioned that sometimes the, the growth in units or development is sometimes tied with the um, kind of the district or zoning that is implemented. Are there new districts or rezones underway um, or are you waiting on the new comp plan in order to make that determination?
4: So we don't control when someone asks to, to change the use of their land.
6: Mm-hmm.
4: Uh, we evaluate their request against our comprehensive plan to see if that meets the vision. The comprehensive plan doesn't use the same designations as zoning would use, so whereas zoning might say something very specific like RS5, the RS5 zone. The comp plan will say this area is generally appropriate for housing of a density of anywhere in this range of density, which could be multiple different zoning districts or a mix of housing, or a project that has uh, one designation but then pulls in some elements from other kinds of commercial development. Um, So so we know that. And what we've seen is that a lot of projects lately have had to get creative in their zoning requests because what they want to do didn't match up with one single zone, which is, good, we want to encourage mixed use. And we also want to encourage a variety of housing types. And to try to make that simpler, we actually engaged in creating a form-based code Mm -hmm. um, for the South District and the Southwest District of the city where we anticipate future growth to occur soon that really established a, a different zoning class that could be used in those areas. And that zoning title is uh, got some, a very specific name called transex and some numbers. But basically, it created smaller lots so that houses could be smaller and have smaller lots and, and hopefully encourage um, the construction of different kinds of housing for different um, desires from people in the market, but also lower price points.
8: We have, like, historically there have been zoning regulations that have hampered the diverse, your choice in housing. Um, up until, well, in 2005 we changed our zoning code. Talking, Danielle talked about duplexes. So we require duplexes in, in our lowest density zones only to be allowed on, on street corners. After that, that, that ch- zoning change we basically don't get duplexes at all in our zoning code. So in 2016 we did affordable housing action plan and we looked at how, why is our market how, so expensive and what can we do to encourage affordable housing. And one of those suggestions, and this was just one of the many tools that we have in our toolkit, is to look at our zoning regulations. So we've had it as a goal since 2016 to look at what is in our zoning code that's not getting a diversity of housing for people at all different parts of their lives and at different price points. And so based on our comprehensive plan, what zoning amendments could we could we proceed with? And so we are taking various Zoning text amendments that we think the comp plan supports right now through PNZ and through the council. And September 19th, council will have their first reading of those zoning text amendments that we think increases housing flexibility. Will put housing at different different price points. Um, single family on largest lots is the is the most expensive type of housing. So we're trying to encourage smaller development, more duplexes, townhomes. Um, it gets it denser. Denser neighborhoods, but more affordable neighborhoods, and different price points. Because new construction is never affordable, but it is over time. So I know when our affordable housing providers are going out to buy units right now. They're looking at homes that are 20, 30 years old because that's affordable to them. Um, do you want just, us to cover well, what? Well, I just
6: want to ask a follow-up question. Does that inc- does do those changes include accessory dwelling uses? Yep. Yeah. Okay, great. <laughs> did you
8: did you want to did you <laughs> want us to talk about the text amendments we're bringing forward on September 19th? Or
6: um, well, maybe there's other questions. I don't know. First, but.
8: Could I ask
1: a couple quick questions just for the lay, lay people in the room, um, a few definitions, and I think accessory dwelling units is probably a good one. What do we mean by accessory dwelling units when we talk about
8: that? People call them granny flats, mother-in-law, cottages, what else? They're basically secondary, they're either attached to your house or they're standalone smaller units that usually um, either, they're, they're typically rented, um, do you want to know, is there a better Did definition you? than me? I, I mean, Well,
1: that's good. (laughs) Um, Mixed use. What do we mean when we talk about mixed use?
4: So a mix of uses, so the conventional zoning would keep everything separated, residential over here, commercial over here, industrial over there. Mixed use is uh, not a new thing, but um, it was an innovation on that that encouraged a more of an actually traditional neighborhood uh, mix of housing and commercial because we had walkable neighborhoods before zoning, and people just got to where they needed to go to buy groceries on foot, which meant it was near the house. Zoning was more auto-centric and basically wanted to keep everything. Thing, uh, contained in within, within itself. So mixed use generally means residential and commercial and, or a mix of different intensities of residential, so apartments and houses, duplex and a house and store.
1: Great. And when we talk about a designation like RS5, what specifically does RS5 mean?
4: Uh, so RS5 is one of the single-family zoning districts, so all of the RS series means single-family residential. RS. Um, And then the five used to probably coincide to an actual density calculation, but it doesn't anymore because all of the dimensional things have been tinkered with. But it's close to five units an acre. So RS5 would be residential single family at a five unit per acre density.
1: Were there any other terms that got thrown out that folks may want defined or clarified? All right. Back to your questions.
0: Well, really quick, since you just mentioned um, older city development that was more walkable and mixed use, do we have any measurement of that or kind of goal around that to, to somehow show or indicate, like, this is a more walkable area or by 2030 we want...
4: It's not so much a metric, but it is baked into a lot of the dimensional standards of the zoning districts. And so anything, even as how long should a block length be is one of the things that gets regulated. And only so long as, you know, a decent sized walk would take you, Um, that's not exactly a metric. But, um, so we focus on walkability, and there's a lot of factors that go into that. Um, I'm trying to think of other like specific, We don't call it out as overtly as that, but many of the things, even lot sizes, they're all intended to encourage walkability. They're intended to um, emulate what kind of organically occurred when everybody walked everywhere. Um, now the car is the predominant form, but we still want to encourage walking and biking. Um, the Parks Master Plan probably focuses on those things more specifically, but that gets rolled into our comp plans as well. So they would have metrics like parkland within a quarter mile of every residence or something like that. So we may not set them in the urban planning, but we're taking that from uh, the the transportation planners, we're taking that from the park planners and incorporating it in the long-range plan, and then also in the zoning districts, which spell out the actual numbers of how big something can be. Can you just
0: say again the timeline for the comp plan when that process starts? We
4: don't have a specific timeline yet because we're still developing it, but a comp plan is usually a three to five year process. And you said it
0: was going to start in. We're,
4: we would hope to have the RFP issued by the end of this year for consultants to um, offer their services to us and get selected.
8: So we are proceeding with the amendments we think we can do right now that the comp right. plan supports. But to have a massive overhaul, uh, when you're talking about increased density uh, throughout all neighborhoods or existing neighborhoods, that's going to take a comp plan amendment. Or, sorry, not amendment. It's going to take a new comp plan. New comp plan, right.
0: Um, it's just like out of. I would love to hear how you think of like how do you view NDS's role in climate action, or, or maybe put another way, like how where do you think climate action goals do or should impact your work?
8: I think, well, Danielle can elaborate, but for me, it's density. Um, how do you get denser neighborhoods, mm-hmm. um, as opposed to? I mean, in our subdivision code, we want um, those those street connections that are within three to 600, that's your street length before you have each block. But to me, we can evaluate and we can measure how many acres of land we have in our lowest density um, single-family use. And it's always, and we're not unique. Iowa City's not unique in any way, but 70 to 80% of your land is in the lowest density residential. Well, when you look at that and you look at segregation of housing, um, we have our housing vouchers. And if we have them all throughout the city, um, or sorry, the county in about the same population of Iowa City, Corville, North Liberty. But when you look at where they are in Iowa City, if vouchers can only go basically where the payment standard allows and multifamily, they're in very specific spots. And so to me, we have to go after density and make sure we have increased density throughout all neighborhoods in Iowa City. And I think that ties into your climate action goals, I think. (laughs) And then also, when we do our housing rehab programs, we're we're starting to work with um, Sarah, climate action department Um, everyone that we go and we proceed with a rehab they have to get a green americorps that energy audit so we factor in those things into the rehab Um, so we're starting to work together uh, much more
4: I I think sustainability is a central tenet of good planning. Um, It's been part of the different philosophies of smart growth and traditional neighborhood design in various different ways. Um, The climate crisis is just another way to focus attention on that. So uh, I think it's a core principle of good planning. So it's in a lot of what we do. Maybe not um, at at the top of the, the... the call list, but uh, all the things, even with annexation, you know, we're, we're looking at compact and contiguous mm-hmm. for a reason, right? Because that leads to efficient infrastructure provision, which leads to an efficient maintenance of that. Um, and the density uh, definitely is a component of making sure that the whole system supports a, a, a smart way to grow rather than an unorganized and expensive way.
8: And now that we have fair fee transit, it, we've always had planning per principles that basically say, your arterial should have like higher density housing so people can use public transport. Well now that now that we have fair free transit, it's even more so that when we do our planning and we do um, we set residential zones and multifamily or denser housing, they should be on arterial so that more people have access to free transit.
6: Quick question, follow up question on the transit on the transportation. So with the growing areas of Tiffin and North Liberty. Um, is the, are the master plans or the, the, you know, the transit plans taking into account those growth areas and anticipating growth of those services?
8: Right now, there's no transit North Liberty.
6: I know. So we we only do Iowa. Okay.
4: Actually,
1: if you want to put a, if you want to take that question and put it in the parking lot, we're actually going to have our MPO director at our next meeting and he may be better positioned to answer that (laughs) question. Thank you.
8: I mean, when they did that transit study, they tried to figure out different connections about how Iowa City and Coralville um, can move people better. Um, But our planning can only... We just focus on Iowa City. But we do have future land use, and we talk about that. Um, I don't know if there's any plans in North Liberty or... Danielle says Coralville does run out to North Liberty. They have one Mm -hmm. route out to the... That's a Kent question. (laughs)
6: Sounds good. (laughs) Thank you.
0: As a follow-up to the walkability of cities, um, you mentioned you want to encourage mixed-use zoning. Um, Are there programs or specific ways that you can do that, or the city could do that in the future?
4: So we try to encourage it by making it easy to do. Um, We want to make it easy to do the right things, and not necessarily harder to do everything else. But um, so the innovations over the years have been to write zoning districts that are anticipate that you will have a mix of uses instead of asking someone to come through a special process to get a special blessing on a mix of uses. I'd say that's probably the best approach we can take.
8: We have done a couple adaptive reuse, uh, commercial adaptive reuse, because it's really hard to develop an older site with with current zoning requirements and current standards. So we did an amendment to make it easier if you're developing an older site regarding reductions in parking um, and different setbacks and dimensional requirements. So we have that. We're making that progress now. Um,
6: Great, thank you. Thank you for that. This is Silman. Um
4: What you had mentioned that that you had that you could talk about the recommendations that you're going to make, or and I was just wondering what those are. We have a a host of them, but I'll just give you the thumbnail sketch uh, on what they include. They're all things that, as Tracy said, we don't think needs a comp plan amendment to do. They're all supported by the comp plan. They're all things that came as feedback to us over the years when we've done affordable housing studies or talked to developers to see what we could do to incent, um, like I said, more of the things we want to see. Basically it's allowing duplexes on mid-block, in the middle of blocks, instead of just on the corners of blocks. Um, Allowing some townhome-style multifamily, so apartments that are uh, apartments, not actual townhomes where you own the land and the structure, but they look the same. Allowing those kinds of structures in the same zoning districts where you could have a regular townhome. Allowing ground-floor residential and mixed-use districts with a simpler process. Um, allowing nursing homes, or what the zoning use would be called an assisted group living, regulating those more like housing than a business or an institution. Um, Changing some of our design standards, we have some material requirements in our design standards on the outside of multi-use buildings that are, not accomplishing what they were meant to accomplish or, or not the highest priority. And we got feedback that if we lessened that, it might help with affordability. So basically, like stone materials within the two feet of the base of the building, uh, eliminating, that, eliminating that requirement and eliminating some requirements of where that material wraps around. Um, making a request for a waiver to uh, the parking for your townhouse style multifamily uh, simpler, we're not taking it out of a a minor modification process and just making it a, an available waiver um, and then reducing lot area and lot widths for a lot of our single family duplex and townhome zoning districts so making lots smaller allowing folks to have smaller lots if they want to design a building on a smaller lot. Um, Increasing the number of bedrooms that you can have in an apartment, duplex, or townhome outside of the university impact zone. So there's a boundary around the university that we know has um, very specific pressures on it for rentals, um, where that cap on three bedrooms would still be, but uh, lifting the cap on the number of bedrooms outside of that zone. Allowing accessory dwelling units or granny flask carriage houses, uh, whatever ca- diverse, want what you want to call those, um, allowing them in more zones, um, allowing them not to need the owner of the property to live on the sites, um, changing the number of bedrooms uh, that are limit, that the limit on bedrooms that you can have in your accessory dwelling unit, increasing the square footage of the accessory dwelling unit, and allowing the accessory dwelling unit to be a standalone um, building on the lot. Uh, right now it has to be uh, part of another building, either the main home or like above in a detached garage. Um, adding some incentives for affordable housing. A lot of our more innovative zoning districts already have an incentive for affordable housing in them, but all of our conventional existing zoning districts don't have any incentive for a developer to build affordable housing, so it would be adding a density bonus in those conventional zones, um, giving them a 20% boost in density if 20% of their units are affordable for a period of 20 years. Uh, And waiving the parking for those units, uh, like we waived the parking for affordable housing units in those other specialty zoning districts. And the last one is kind of more wonky, but uh, relates to fair housing policies and reasonable accommodation accommodation for disabilities. So that's the overview of those.
5: Thank you.
1: I think we do want to be conscious of time, because I know some of you have kiddos to pick up after this. Um, Are there any other questions for Tracy or Danielle?
4: I'm sure if you think of some, Sarah will pass them along. <laughs> yes,
1: absolutely. If there are questions we didn't get to and you'd like to email them to me, I can e- pass that on to and bring the answers back at the next meeting. Or if you're Matt, I can set up a separate meeting. <laughs>
5: well,
1: thank you. Thanks so much for your time. Well, we obviously didn't get to visioning today, Um, but hopefully the information you heard today will help with that, and um, we felt that the, obviously you heard the methane feasibility project was very time sensitive. So um, I actually think it's going to work out okay for us to wait on our visioning for next week, because as Matt so amply demonstrated, it's actually very difficult to talk about the built environment separate from transportation. Um, and what this will allow us to do, is, you know, is Kent Ralston is going to come in from the MPO and talk a bit about uh, the work that his division does, and then we'll together work through the visioning questions um, for our residential areas, our commercial areas, and our industrial areas. Um, so that'll be good, if that is acceptable to all in sundry. Can I
0: just... Uh- share when I just want to share something related to this conversation so I think it um, it's been helping me think about these uh, visioning sessions um, Sarah just sent me an article that I found really helpful that was talking about the state of climate planning in local municipalities today and how that has changed over the last 20 30 years um, and specifically talking about uh, using metrics like greenhouse gas inventories uh, to track our work and sort of the limits of that in, in where we're at today. Um, anyway, one thing that they said in this article was that one of the problems with greenhouse gas inventories is that it results in seeking low-hanging fruit and, um, and it doesn't result in, in thinking about systems changes, the systems changes that we need. It sort of it h- helps us think about the changes we can make within the existing system, which isn't kind of enough. And so they said, instead, envision local community in a carbon-neutral world and set milestones to get to that. And so I feel like that's kind of what we're doing, like trying to envision this future um, about what our community would look like in this carbon-neutral world. And then we can think about how to get to that. So I just want to share that. And I recommend reading this article. I don't know, I can share it to everyone.
1: Would you like me to include that report in the next agenda packet?
3: Yeah.
0: (laughs) Should I do the recap then? Yeah.
1: Does everybody have two minutes to spare on the SoulSmart? Because I think we can knock that one out quickly and then we don't have to carry it over to the next meeting. Um, This is just a heads up to let you know that the city has embarked on a SoulSmart designation. Process. Um, for those of you who are unfamiliar with it, this is a program that was put together by the Department of Energy. We decided to pursue this following the um, code cleanup that you all were involved with earlier this year. Basically, what it allows us to do is, among other things, submit our code to an outside authority for a review to make sure that what we're doing aligns with best practices. So you don't have to take our word for it, you've got someone else saying. Um, And as part of that process, they provided an initial report, which was included in the very end of your very lengthy agenda packet today. Um, And basically, what you'll see in that if you review it is that the uh, result of the code cleanup is that we almost entirely adhere with best practices. There's one area, um, you would have noticed, where it said needs improvement, and the uh, folks reviewing it apologized to me. They said that needs improvement's the language that's on there, it doesn't necessarily mean that like we have to improve in this way, um, just that it wasn't found in our code. And what that thing specifically is, is a statement of purpose within the code saying, the purpose of this section for um, solar codes are to accomplish the following. We actually, codes get written in a lot of different ways. This gets a little wonky. But the way our code is written, um, our solar inclusions aren't in a dedicated section of their own. They're um, regulated as mechanical units and mechanical units are sort of sprinkled throughout the code. So the reason we don't have a purpose statement about our solar codes in our code is because we don't have a place to put something like that. And they were very clear in saying, like, we understand that your code is written in this other way that would not necessarily allow for that. But, you know, it's a standardized report, so you get what you get. I just wanted to mention that in case anybody saw that and was like, but wait, there's more to do. I mean, there's always more to do, but on that particular one, we can breathe a sigh of relief. So, We wanted to include it uh, so that you would have an update on it. Um, It also counts toward our certification to have brought it to you to discuss. If you have any questions about the SoulSmart designation, do feel free to reach out to me. But my hope is um, by the time we meet again in October or November, that process will be entirely completed. They will have reviewed the other areas and we'll be telling you about the designation that we've achieved, which I will just say um, in a preliminary way looks very promising. And they don't just review planning and zoning, they take a look at um, permitting and inspection, government operations, so what are our plans to incorporate solar into government buildings, uh, what are our efforts toward community engagement, and what are we doing to help market development for solar. So they're reviewing all our activities in all those areas and uh, we'll be able to provide you a full assessment um, in the future. Thank you for indulging me for a few minutes more.
0: (laughs) Now the recap. (laughs)
1: Um, So for the next meeting, we are going to include the state of local climate planning um, report in your uh, agenda packet, and uh, we'll have some discussion of that at a later date as well. Um, We will be inviting Kent Ralston to join us from the MPO. We encourage you to continue thinking about the visioning, what does success look like in a zero carbon future or a low carbon future by 2030 and 2050. Um, Is there anything else on the actionable items that we're missing?
6: Promote the climate fest.
1: Yes, please, one and all, promote the climate fest and attend if at all possible. Um, and then we'll be just confirming seeing you again on October second, which really isn't all that long.
9: Um,
0: I'll entertain a motion to adjourn.
6: Uh, this is Krieger. I motion to adjourn.
5: Grimm second.
0: All in favor of adjourning at five ten? Aye. Aye. Aye.
1: Thanks, everyone. Thanks for staying a little later.